This is the 40th and final episode of the Progressive Bitcoiner. It has been nearly a year since we started. It was a project that never would have happened without the support of several individuals. First and foremost, Nicole Dobrow, who was really the one who started everything, and so she cannot be thanked enough. And Evan Primakov for building our website. And Troy Cross and Bradley Rettler for their encouragement. And of course, Tom Maxwell, our audio engineer extraordinaire. Tom, thank you. Your talent meant everything to this podcast, and I am incredibly happy for you to be pursuing your dreams again. I speak for everyone when I say that we look forward to the day when it isn't Twitter videos of you singing, but videos of you on stage doing what you do best and sharing your talent with the world. I want to thank my guests. I would never have expected to enjoy these interviews as much as I did. Upon reflection, I think the reason was simply being present to their stories for a brief moment in time being led into their lives. Admittedly, this was what I enjoy about being a physician. It isn't the medicine, it is being a part of something meaningful for that person. A sentiment that brings me to a few final thoughts that I have before we get to the interview. A theme in Bitcoin is that of the sovereign individual and personal responsibility. These are laudable beliefs, but they should be taken a step further. What does it mean to you to be a sovereign individual? What does it allow for? What will it allow you to become? A sovereign individual should not simply be an expression of freedom from something, but more importantly, what it allows you to do once freed. What does a lack of encumbrance or reliance on a third party mean to you? Does it allow you to become a better partner, son, daughter, or neighbor? The only way to gain true freedom, to not be subject to or affected by a particular undesirable thing, is to not rely on a third party in the first place. If freedom means a lack of outside influence on your autonomy, there is increased personal responsibility for your choices by default. It has been said that responsibility and duty must gain some degree of parity with right and freedom. Every person that is not, quote, sovereign, is reliant on someone or something. Therefore, taking personal responsibility and being a sovereign individual requires that we think of others to help them get to a better position. Ultimately, their reliance is our reliance. Sovereignty when only thinking of oneself, is as fleeting as victory. It is not the end. It is the actions that you undertake while being sovereign. We've all benefited from each other in this community. We may think of ourselves as lone actors on Twitter, but we are all nodes providing support for each other. Your individual strength is an act of caring for the network. It is the layer zero, and we should applaud and encourage that. If I could leave the community of Bitcoiners with one message, it would be to help make someone else's life better. The greatest act of love or caring is taking care of yourself so that you may freely care for others. Your sovereignty is the freedom to do that. Bitcoin is not the end. And like sovereignty, it is the means by which you make this world a better place. The current system is unfair. It's kind of a leading to wealth inequality. It's, it's, it's the inflationary system is meant for you to put your money into something else. And therefore, these things are automatically going to inflate because you have no other way to store your the value of your money. So therefore, these other vehicles such as housing uh, will increase because that's where people have to go to be able to keep their, their worth, right? What, what they worked hard with their time. So all those things just resonated with me. And obviously, once you start resonating with those concepts, Bitcoin makes just so much sense, right? Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. 
I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Sergio Sejas. Sergio has his doctorate in meteorology and is currently working at the NASA Langley Research Center. Sergio does research in climatology and meteorology, focusing on polar warming and Earth's energy budget. I'm always intrigued when an expert is willing to go against the standard narrative in their field. And as a climate scientist, Sergio brings his valuable expertise to Bitcoin. And I, for one, hope that he has an increasing presence here. So thank you so much. Please enjoy this final episode with Sergio Sejas. Well, Sergio Sejas, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm excited to have you. Well, hi, Mark. Uh, pleasure being here. It's an honor. Yes, I was, as we were just saying, uh, you are not off the podcast tour. You are a new voice in, in the space, um, all, although, like I said, potent. Uh, you have a great deal of expertise and input. Uh, so for the listeners, please tell us a little bit about yourself, both personal and professional. Uh, sure. So come from an immigrant family. Um, got my uh, educational training in uh, physics and then uh, meteorology, where I got my doctorate at Florida State University. I taught after that and then uh, just per year and then um, started doing my postdoc at NASA. And um, now I'm working as a research scientist as a NASA contractor. Where did your, your family immigrate from? Uh, Bolivia. Bolivia. Do you go back frequently? Uh, when I was a kid, um, I used to. Um, my mom has a lot of family over there. I still does. Um, but definitely not as much as I used to when I was a kid. But it's definitely a place that I still have in my heart. Even though I didn't really grow up there. I moved when I was four years old. So I grew up in the States. But definitely, you know, still try to connect with my roots. And the family over there is great. It always makes me feel at home when I've gone. So it's a place I enjoy to go. What did you get your PhD in then? Uh, meteorology. So my PhD is in meteorology. Any specific area? So my dissertation was on understanding uh, climate feedbacks and how they uh, contribute to the global warming response uh, forced by increasing CO2. Yeah. So I was looking at your research gate uh, profile of all your articles and my eyes uh, glazed over. But I saw a lot of research about the Arctic. So please tell us a little bit about uh, your specific area of, of research. Sure. So yes, uh, the Arctic has been a significant area of research of mine um, because it warms more than any other place on the planet. Um, it's about three to four times uh, the warming that occurs globally, at least in a global mean sense. Um, so um, that's one of the spots we really want to understand why and what's happening there. And because that's where it's happening most rapidly. And that's where the signal is uh, most uh, uh, observed in the observation. So um, my research has been trying to understand uh, what's going on there and looking at different factors. And uh, we can go into those if you want. But, uh, but that's uh, the main reason why is just because it's been warming so much uh, relative to the rest of the world. Explain that. I think it would be helpful to, to know. Sure. So... Um, there's a few theories, there's competing theories, and that's part of the scientific process is uh, letting, uh, you know, and scientists like to uh, bicker about which one's more important and how much more important and this and that. So um, that's what we do. And uh, from my evaluation and my work that I've done, um, sea ice loss is the key reason why uh, the Arctic has amplified warming. Now, when you warm, obviously sea ice melts, that makes sense. 
that sea ice also amplifies the warming. It's a positive feedback on the warming itself. Now, most people assumed um, it was because of the surface albedo feedback. And what that is, is the sea ice reflects more solar uh, energy than the ocean beneath it. So when it melts away, more solar energy gets absorbed because the albedo decreases, right? The what decreases? The albedo, the, the reflective property of the surface. Okay. So that's known as the surface albedo feedback. Because it's less reflective, it absorbs more solar energy, which amplifies the warming. So most studies, uh, at least early on, thought that was the explanation. But when you look at it seasonally, the seasonal warming in the Arctic is largest during the wintertime than it is during the summertime. And um, the Arctic only has sun during the summertime. During the wintertime, it's known as polar night because the sun doesn't really uh, come out. So if it's the surface albedo feedback, the question then is why is it in uh, wintertime and not in during summertime? So that's um, part of where my work comes in. And uh, my work explains that it's not just the reflective property, which is significant, but sea ice has a much smaller thermal inertia than the ocean surface. So that means that the sea ice cools and warms more quickly than the ocean beneath it, right? So when you go from sea ice to ocean, you're actually changing that property of the surface. Um, and therefore, it has a large, larger thermal inertia. So even though you're absorbing more solar energy, you don't automatically see that warming response. Instead, what happens is it just slows the cooling that happens from summer to winter. So the ocean cools more slowly from summer to winter than the sea ice would. And therefore, your warming is largest during winter time than it is during summer because uh, that's when you're going from uh, summer to winter and the cooling is uh, slower. So you can think of it as a race. If I'm going more slowly, as the time goes on, the amplitude uh, increases because the distance between the two runners increases because one's going slower than the other one. So that's what happens. As you go from summer to winter, you cool down, but the other one's cooling more uh, slowly than before. So now you have your largest warming during uh, winter time. And that's what one of my papers uh, explains and tries to go into detail in proving. Is this the negative greenhouse effect that you're referring no, to? This is how sea ice loss exa uh, uh, exacerbates Arctic warming and leads to its seasonal pattern. Okay. Explain the negative greenhouse effect. <laughs> so negative greenhouse effect. So, um, well, first let's understand uh, the greenhouse effect. So most uh, people, when they explain it, they say it's like putting a blanket over yourself uh, when you're cold, right? By putting the blanket, you, you retain the warmth that your body uh, gives off. So all of us have thermal energy that, that's being given off constantly. And by putting on the blanket, you're uh, restricting that energy, uh, therefore uh, keeping that warmth and not being cold. Well, that's why sometimes you hear the atmosphere being the Earth's blanket because of the greenhouse gases. Well, what that means is that the Earth, which also emits thermal energy, it means that when you put on that blanket, the atmosphere, the energy leaving the Earth should be less at the top of the atmosphere than at the surface, right? Because the surface is emanating that at the thermal energy, but the atmosphere serves as a blanket, retaining that energy. So what's coming out of the top of the atmosphere should be less. So scientists have just said, okay, well, that could be used as a measure of the greenhouse effect, a way to quantify it. 
So they just take the outgoing long wave energy, so that's the thermal energy from the surface, emanating from the surface, and then subtract the outgoing long wave energy at the top of atmosphere. And that value is positive for the most part. And the bigger the value, the larger the greenhouse effect. Now, what we find is over the Antarctic plateau, the data indicates that if you do the same metric where you're subtracting the outgoing long wave energy from the thermal emission from the surface, surprise, surprise, you get a negative value, which means what? What it means is that the atmosphere is actually increasing the energy that the surface is emitting so that you have more energy leaving the top of atmosphere that is being emanated from the surface, right? That's what the negative greenhouse effect entails, which at first glance is kind of a paradoxical because uh, you don't see that. And the question is why? So the paper goes on to try to understand why that's occurring. And I'll try to give you a simple way of understanding it. So greenhouse gases don't just absorb thermal energy. They also emit thermal energy based on temperature, right? Now in the atmosphere, temperature typically decreases with height, at least in the troposphere, right? Which is the part we're in and most of the part that we care about in terms of the atmosphere, the temperature is decreasing with height. Now, what that means is the energy that's coming from the surface is being absorbed and being re-emitted at a lower temperature. So there's less energy being emitted than uh, absorbed. So the net is absorption, right? Because it's more absorption than emission. Now, what's happening over the Antarctic Plateau for a substantial portion of the year, there's something called a temperature inversion. And what that indicates is that the temperature increases with height instead of decreases with height in the troposphere, at least for a portion of the troposphere, right? And because of that, and also the fact that water vapor is, uh, is very, uh, well, it's dry. There's very little water vapor over the Antarctic Plateau because it's extremely cold, but there's enough of it that it still has a radiative impact. So because of that and that inversion, your emission is actually larger than your absorption by the greenhouse gases over the Antarctic, which leads to more energy being emitted at the top of atmosphere than below. So it's the same exact physics. The main difference is the temperature profile and how much of the greenhouse gases are, are there and, and uh, where they're located. So it's, it's, it gets a little more intricate than that, but that's kind of like the basic understanding as to the why. Now, are these processes that you're describing um quote-unquote, normal processes, or are these exacerbated by climate change and the greenhouse gases that exist there? Well, I mean, part of the whole thing with uh, increasing CO2, for example, is that, yes, that increases the greenhouse effect, but what happens is that leads to warming, not just of the surface, but of the atmosphere. A warmer atmosphere allows you to have more water vapor because the more uh, warm the atmosphere is, the more water vapor it can hold. It's kind of like a cup. You can think of it as a cup. The warmer it is, the bigger your cup. You can hold more water, right? So now you can hold more water. So that's usually what happens. There's more evaporation into the atmosphere. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas. It leads to a stronger greenhouse effect and therefore gets amplified. So that's a water vapor feedback, for example. So these factors, yes, um, are influenced by climate change because uh, you know it's the greenhouse effect. So actually over Antarctica, the negative greenhouse effect is disappearing. Over time, the 
there will be no quote unquote negative greenhouse effect. It's going to disappear over the Antarctic plateau and you'll have positive values over the Antarctic plateau, just like you have over the rest of the planet. Your work encompasses both poles, I understand. Yeah, so I, okay. I, I, I've done uh, the whole globe, and <laughs> but, mainly, but mainly the Arctic. And yes, mainly Arctic, uh, sorry, mainly warming. Okay. Out of sheer curiosity, how are the climate effects different between the two poles? Let's let's look at the the normal first. What what should a normal climate look like for both in South Poles, and then how has climate change and greenhouse gases affected the poles differently? Well, the main difference is that you got to think that the Arctic is really an ocean surrounded by land, so that's the Arctic Ocean surrounded by land, whereas the Antarctic is land surrounded by ocean. So that's the key distinction between the two uh, geographies. Um, and because of also uh, the Antarctic has a very high elevation, um, so that factors into why it gets so cold over the Antarctic versus the Arctic. So the coldest temperatures are over the Antarctic. Now, because of the sea ice uh, amplification that I discussed earlier, that's why you see the signal in the Arctic, but you don't have that signal quite as strong over the Antarctic because it's mainly land surrounded by sea ice, not the other way around. So because it's land surrounded by sea ice, you don't, I mean, the sea ice surrounding it still has that effect I mentioned earlier, but it's not as pronounced as it is uh, in the Arctic. And eventually over time, you'll see the Antarctic will have more and more warming as the uh, warming signal gets uh, spread. But uh, because of, so the main distinction is that it's just the land versus the ocean where you have sea, lots of sea ice and you have less sea ice over the Antarctic and land masses uh, the main uh, dominant factor over the Antarctic. I feel like this is, we're out for a beer and I'm having <laughs> you talk shop. <laughs> Much like somebody wants to talk to me about medicine and I'm like, uh, I don't want to. I'm, I'm making you drone on about your your research, but I find it fascinating. What I hear you saying is that this, this complexity will not fit into a Twitter thread. Uh, definitely not. I did actually try one time I put up, because I was part of a review paper on Arctic warming and I did place our findings uh, in uh, a tweet and did a little thread and uh, put the main uh, findings and kind of a, a link to it. But obviously, uh, it, it's not necessarily the most popular uh, right. tweet, tweet I placed. And uh, the paper itself is not the easiest to read. It's long and can be a little uh, tedious for those who aren't in the field. So I understand. We got to get those re retweets up, Sergio. We got to get them up. <laughs> So I, I'm curious about what is meant by the Earth's energy bu budget. What is that? And can it be balanced? So part of my job, so I, uh, I work on the series, NASA series team. And what that is essentially is using satellites to measure the energy coming from uh, out from the Earth. So how much energy is leaving the planet, right? And obviously, we know the energy coming in, which we could also measure, which is the solar energy. Um, so the idea is, how much energy is coming into the system? How much energy is leaving the system? And we use satellites to measure the energy coming in and out of the system. And that essentially lets us know how the climate system is changing. Because obviously what we expect with the increasing greenhouse gases is that more energy is being retained. So therefore our energy content should increase, right? The amount of energy within the system should increase, right? So what you see is that is you see the net 
heat content of the earth is increasing over time, which is actually, in my opinion, a better uh, metric than surface temperature. So obviously, everybody knows surface temperature and looks at surface temperature as how it's changing to indicate uh, global warming is occurring. But the whole system, I think, is a better measure, the energy, because surface is just a point measurement. Well, it's not a point measurement if you're looking at, at the whole surface, but if you're just looking at one specific column, it's just a point measurement. You still have the atmosphere, you still have the ocean beneath that influences how much energy is coming uh, in and out. So surface, so for example, you heard, you heard of the global warming hiatus. I'm sure at some point there was uh, people saying, oh, look, surface temperature isn't increasing. Uh, global warming is a hoax. Well, if you look at the energy content of the earth, it was still increasing. So even though surface temperature wasn't increasing, the heat content was increasing, telling you that the signal is still there. You're just not, for this period of time, not seeing it. And that's because of internal variability and other stuff. Aside from solar, what, what is causing the, the increase in that energy uh, content? So we've, we've got solar and then thermal and then greenhouse gases trapping it. What else is contributing to its, its retention, if that's what you're, if, if I'm getting that straight? Yeah, so when you're looking at top of atmosphere, it's pretty much just the radiation. So it's the solar and the thermal energy coming in and out, right? Now, the solar does have a cycle to it, uh, but its changes are very minute. So it's, we know it's not the solar part that's causing the changes in the energy heat content of the Earth. It's mainly the thermal part. And that thermal part is impacted by the greenhouse gases, right? That's what we can see, and that's what we measure, right? And that's what you're seeing happen. So you're seeing a reduction in the emission of that thermal energy. So you want the system wants to be in balance. As much energy that's coming in, as much energy should be leaving the planet. Because there's an imbalance, there's more energy coming in than coming out, you need to warm. The warmer you get, the more energy you emit. So therefore, you balance the energy as you get warmer. Let me stop you there because I'm curious, what is meant by balance? Like, how, how do we know where that equilibrium should be? Well, it should be at the energy coming in, right? The amount of energy coming in, which is the solar energy, right? Which, which is just dictated by the distance we are to, to the sun, right? We know how much that is. Now, that has a cycle to it based on the cycle, sunspot cycle of the uh, sun and also the Milikanovich. I can never say that name right. But another cycle, which is like the 11,000-year cycle, which uh, also has an impact. But those, like I said, are very minute. Uh, for the impacts we are seeing. It, it, it can't explain what we're seeing, right? Yeah. So what the climate system wants is uh, just to be in balance. As much energy that's coming in is as much energy as coming out. When you have that, you're stable. You're completely stable. Your climate system, quote unquote, isn't changing. Obviously, you always have a seasonal cycle of the sun, right? So because of the inclination of the earth. So that's always going to be there. So you're always going to have constant change, but your your system will be stable. Um. So that's what's being imbalance. Gotcha. And the warming that's occurring is meant to try to balance it. Sure. Makes sense. That's fascinating. All right. So I want to ask you a few general climate questions here before we before we get into Bitcoin. And just to, to get your your thoughts. Generally speaking, when you're talking to people at a party uh, or around a social event and they find out that you're a climate scientist, what does the average climate activist get wrong? about climate change? So I'll say this. Um, now, this is more of an opinion than I would say back. Now, 
because I know you're saying in terms of climate change, I assume you mean in terms of the science, right? Correct. So it's not always easy to distinguish how much blame to put on climate change in terms of what's happening uh, with extreme climate events. Um, well, not climate events, extreme weather events is what I meant to say. Um, uh, even hurricanes or, or uh, droughts, these kind of things, the natural variability of the system it's hard to distinguish how much of a signal is the climate change signal and the natural variability signal. And this is still on quite ongoing research. So sometimes I think just like uh, deniers want to point to one cold uh, winter or a cold record as this is uh, not a uh, climate change. Look, this is proof. We can't always, always blame uh, extreme events that we see on climate change. Now, they very well could be uh, happening. I'm sure they do. Now, the question is how severe of an impact do they have on these things? But I think that's still all very ongoing research in the field. Um, so in terms of the science, I think sometimes how much we blame on climate change can be a little exaggerated. I'm not saying that it's not true or that it doesn't have an impact because um, it does. I mean, I, I think climate change impacts natural variability itself. So that's why it's very hard to extract the two. So that 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 a blame is sometimes I think that it's maybe overdone. So I'll, I'll say that in terms of what what I think is maybe uh, a little overblown. That seems to be. I, I was reading uh, an editorial response to Steve Kunin's book Unsettled. While I have not read his book, this editorial uh, by Roger Pelkey Jr. was I found really fascinating, and he his critique of Kunin's book was that he he didn't have a necessarily a fair and balanced um, assessment of the uh, of the science while he he said that is there's still some discrepancies in the science and what sounds to be again surrounding a lot of this variability he, he looked at a lot of the the hurricane data and in in and some of the, the acute weather events that you refer to and there, then therefore extrapolated that the science is unsettled and we can't put as much weight on uh, the research as as we once had. And Roger's critique was that he ended up taking a partisan stance on that, whereas he should have remained um, more impartial. But I'm curious to, if, if, if you've read the book or if you read the response to get your thoughts on on how they both came down on, on that position. So I haven't read the book either, but um, I am familiar with that. I, and I believe I, I read that. I, I, now that you mentioned it, 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 it rings a bell in my head reading that um, by uh, Roger. Um, and I definitely think uh, Roger's position there is more uh, accurate than uh, Steve's. Um, I definitely think you can't look at these things that are still being researched and uncertain and say, we can't do anything about it, so let's not worry about it. Because actually, there's a lot of things that are very robust. For example, um, my line of research, Arctic warming and uh, global warming overall, the models have been pretty accurate in terms of what we've seen in observations. And even if there's uncertainty in terms of the magnitude, they all agree in terms of the patterns. So they all show Arctic warming is amplified. They all show the seasonal pattern is largest in winter time, right? So there's no disagreement in terms of the main features. It's more in terms of the severity or the timing. If we're looking at climate predictions, it's more the timing and the severity of these things than the uh, 
and then the actual um is this model is doing this versus no they're actually doing quite similar things it's just when it's happening how much of it is happening and those are the things that are kind of uncertain and some of the weather stuff is a little more certain because now you're getting into regional effects and stuff like that which are harder to pinpoint um but definitely no reason to completely throw out everything just because uh, this little thing is more uncertain than the other thing. That's, uh, to me, no no reason to uh, throw those out. Um, so definitely Steve Coonan, I think there is a, more of a biased opinion than an impartial observer. Yeah, what it sounds like you're saying is that there is a body of research there that is very much signal. But then there's a lot of peripheral research, you know, again, maybe around whether or not those weather patterns represent climate change induced variability that yes we're a little bit less certain on but there's this core body of research that still points us in 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 the direction of um climate change and again with the with the asterisk there of the wind and how severe uh being variables that are more challenging to predict is that an accurate overall statement i think so i'm glad uh, you understood it <laughs> <laughs> right um well, wonderful. I am anxious to talk to you about Bitcoin. Um, you are among, you know, at least on the Twitter world, uh, a few brave souls who are willing to stick their necks out there within the scientific community and say, um, you know, well, let me just read it because your, your pin tweet basically sums it up. I study climate change for a living, and yes, it's a real problem. The global monetary system is also a real problem, which Bitcoin provides a solution for. These ideas are not in opposition. I think that's perfect. You can you can have what are believed to be discordant views, but in fact, you look beneath the, the, the surface and they're quite complementary. Before getting into the actual details of, of Bitcoin and climate change and methane, et cetera, what was your Bitcoin journey? Well, back. So my familiarity with Bitcoin probably happened in the prior bull run. Um, so let's say 2017. Mm -hmm. And that's when I kind of uh, came more into my mindset, obviously uh, more late than others. Um, but, um, but when I saw it, it definitely was not something that I decided I want to look into or research or be a part of. And part of the reason is um, when you see something like that, that all of a sudden it's making waves because price is rising so much and everybody's quote unquote becoming rich. Um, natural instinct is to be like, it's too good to be true, right? Uh, something's wrong here. If people are, all these people are just making money and uh, money's going up so rapidly. Like that doesn't seem like a normal thing. And additionally, on my end, um, my uncle um, who unfortunately is kind of a snake oil salesman, <laughs> He was uh, presenting Bitcoin to me and telling me I should buy it and that uh, this and that. And I was like, on top of that, my uncle, who I know has gotten himself into uh, pyramid schemes and other stuff like that. Um, this probably means it's something I should definitely avoid. Right. I kind of take whatever he tells me, go the opposite way. <laughs> um, so I definitely didn't give it a fair look back then and was just kind of blew it off as a uh, probably like a pyramid scheme that people are going to eventually it's going to fall and get hurt. And unfortunately that's what I think, you know, current events, right. What's happening right now in the, in the industry. It's, I think that's what the impression people get, right. Even if it's not 
Bitcoin exactly that's causing these things. It's more what companies are doing. And Absolutely. Guilty by association. Exactly. Guilty by association. So I think when people are just looking at it at a glance, and especially when you see things like this, it's so easy to push it away and blow it off. And unfortunately, it also kind of, I know people uh, even before this were asking me, are, are you still uh, into Bitcoin? I'm like, yes, it's not because of the price or it has nothing to do with the price. It's because of the fundamentals behind it. Um, if not, I wouldn't be really telling you, I'm, you know, I'm not a salesman. I'm not trying to, you know, it's, it's because of what's behind it that's important. And that that's not changing because of price. So that's unfortunate. But so anyway, so um, I definitely missed the boat then. Um, but eventually, um, I think I was, uh, so this goes back to 2019. I really wanted to stop just being a regular uh, investor, let's say, where I have my 401k, it's going into my 2060 account or whatever, you know, for the future where they do whatever they think is best for you. Um, and I kind of wanted to take more reins of my uh, own financials and learn more about uh, the economic system investments and listening to podcasts and starting to learn. I, you know, I start kind of seeing things that in my head, I'm like, is this how this works? Um, Such and, as? Well, you know, the how housing becomes such an investment vehicle and kind of you kind of really understand why housing uh, becomes unaffordable for the common person. And just the whole, like everything depends on the Fed, um, whether they're, you know, stimulating the economy. Um, and all of these things uh, started to show me that, and, I guess I also started uh, listening to some podcasts that would mention Bitcoin or at least blockchain. And I realized that, oh, maybe it's something that actually has utility. It's not something that is just a permit scheme. So during that time is when I think I first dabbled into Bitcoin, just kind of like, okay, this seems interesting. Let me uh, put it in. And then as I started learning more and, and you know, then starting to listen to uh, more uh Bitcoin podcast, let's say like uh, Preston's, right, which talks both, well, at least he used to have both the regular traditional finance and Bitcoin. And it just made a lot more sense to me uh, what I was hearing from them, from what I was uh, learning from traditional sources. And to me, it just hit me like the current system is unfair. It's kind of uh, leading to wealth inequality. It's, it's, it's the inflationary system is meant for you to put your money into something else. And therefore, these things are automatically going to inflate because you have no other way to store your the value of your money. So therefore, these other vehicles such as housing uh, will increase because that's where people have to go to be able to keep their, their worth, right? What, what they worked hard with their time. So all those things just resonated with me. And obviously, once you start resonating with those concepts, Bitcoin makes just so much sense, right? Um, so I definitely think because of that, I was much more um, easily convinced and, and dissuaded from the environmental issue versus other people that don't see it from that angle, but just are you trying to convince it directly from the environmental angle? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why for me, it makes sense. And I've always been the person where I don't have to go with what everybody else says or even in in, in my career. I usually publish stuff that is a little further from mainstream. I mean, with the negative greenhouse effect, um, I actually had some people, even before they read my my work, being like, 
are you a climate denier? I'm like, no. It's like, read the papers. If you find anything that's wrong, let me know. Like, if I made a mistake, I'd be happy to correct it. Yeah, critique my math, buddy. Not yes, uh... exactly. Like, where, where is it wrong? Where's the data wrong, right? right? right. These are radiative models that are being used by everybody. It's not just me. It's, this is observations. Um, so, so definitely I'm willing to go against the grain as long as, in my mind, it makes sense. Um, so that's that's where really where I started. And the, and the more I, I, I learned about our system and learned more about Bitcoin, uh, it just made me more of a Bitcoiner. You know, you start going down the rabbit holes, as they say, right? Yeah, I think that's a common feature among people who don't, who otherwise are climate activists, who don't get turned off by that uh, element of concern for Bitcoin, is that they come to it through more of the, the financial side of things, meaning they, they understand it's, it's, it's application for financial uh, equality uh, rather than other assets that are out there. So that's already um, a foot in the door from a value perspective. And so they, with that, it, there's a smaller leap to be able to say um, you're, you're less concerned about its climate impact, obviously setting aside that we feel that it's quite the opposite. Whereas people who don't see its benefit from that side, I think, don't have that foot in the door. And then therefore, it's much easier to close out any element of, of, of beneficial effects that Bitcoin might have in the environment because they see no value of Bitcoin in the first place. Correct. And I mean, that's why it was easy for me to justify um, Bitcoin because it's like uh, driving an electric vehicle. Right. It still uh, uses electricity, so it still has uh, greenhouse emissions. But relative to the internal combustion engine, it's a great improvement. So to me, looking at Bitcoin and the system it introduces in terms of uh, the financial system versus our current financial system, which I think is uh, highly responsible for the climate uh, change uh, crisis, uh, is definitely switching from the system that's causing this to a less uh, pollutant system. And then actually, when you learn more about it, you learn it's even better than that. It's beneficial. Um, and we can get into that. But, but that's how I, like I that. first kind of look at it. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Uh, before we get into those those details, when you read the the white paper, I'm curious, given your physics math background, did, did it strike you as fascinating, the, that, the math side of it? Yes. Um, I mean, to me, it was more just the foresight, like... Um, how do you decide four years versus two years versus six years? Like, and even then, I'm still trying to. I still think about those concepts. And was that the best election? It seems kind of in hindsight. You, you kind of, uh, I'm amazed at the the foresight um, that uh, you know Satoshi has and uh, the difficulty adjustment. You know, um, to me, all those things more than the technical aspects of it. I mean, the Cryptography. I'm less computer programmer than the you know uh, scientist. Um, I mean, obviously, I do some computer programming because that's kind of how we also do science nowadays. But but just to me, those those concepts that he kind of marries together is what I was just uh, and what astonished me and still does about Bitcoin. Right? It's 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 that's that's uh to me the most amazing thing about the whole thing is just. How do you put all of these pieces together and have that foresight so that you create what we see with Bitcoin? Um, to me, that, that's the most amazing part. So tell me, 
what is your hope for Bitcoin and the climate? What is that symbiotic vision that you have for the two of them? So, yeah, so once you start uh, looking at uh, Bitcoin mining and proof of work, right, you essentially have three internal factors that determine whether it's positive or negative for climate. And that's the price of Bitcoin, the halving, and the difficulty adjustment. So you have those three factors. Now, two of those factors, I think, are energy limiting, right? The halving and the difficulty adjustment. And the price, because it can be very large and it could have a bull run, can be negative because if it's really uh, valuable, it has a high price, then essentially any energy energy source becomes uh, a good way to make profit, you know, any, any energy source. So the first proposition in my head is, do I think the best and cheapest energy source is uh, clean energy? And in my head, it is. And I'm no expert on these things, right? I'm more on the climate science side, but everything I've seen in terms of looking at solar uh, prices decreasing, right, indicates to me that these energy sources are abundant, right? You have the sun, you have the wind everywhere. Essentially, they're free because they're just there. We're not extracting them, right? Versus fossil fuels, which you got to extract, transport. Uh, yes, you need uh, materials for them, but you also need materials to create the infrastructure for fossil fuels, right? Um, so this is going to be the cheapest energy source. It's going to—it's the cleanest as well, right? So therefore, if you're talking about the difficulty adjustment and the halvings, these two things are going to lead you towards the cheapest energy, right? And the cheapest energy is the clean energy, the renewables, right? So in that sense, I see a symbiotic relationship because not only does Bitcoin want the cheapest energy, because if you're a miner and you're the, you have the cheapest energy source, even if prices are high, that just means you can expand operations. You can expand operations more than anybody else. So you can always outcompete. That's why you, that's what you kind of currently saw, right, in, in the uh, industry, is that the hash rate was still skyrocketing, even though we were in a bear market, right? And some uh, miners are now going out of business because of it. And that's what technically should happen, is if you're a miner who has cheap energy, you can expand your operations and put other miners out of business, right? Because you have the best source. So. I see that kind of relationship where Bitcoin wants the cheapest energy source. I believe the cheapest energy source is going to be renewables. Therefore, that's going to be good for the climate. And on top of that, it makes renewables more economically sound, right? Because of how they stabilize the grids, it's flexible. Um, it uh, can be a buyer first uh, resort. So it could be put behind the grid before the transmission gets uh, set up and already be monetizing that energy before it gets connected. And then it could use the wasted energy that it has and be a buyer of last resort, right? So it has all these factors to help increase renewables. And furthermore, I, so the overall vision I have is that I'd like to think that Bitcoin mining will become part of the infrastructure of commercial and residential buildings, right? Of housing, right? And when it becomes that, that infrastructure, I don't mean just Bitcoin mining, I mean uh, solar and even possibly wind. Uh, will be part of that infrastructure so that everybody has their energy it, just from their homes, right? And therefore, we're all part of the network because <laughs> we all have Bitcoins in our homes. It's all decentralized because the energy is be being uh, created right there. 
it's generated right there from your households, from your buildings. And that it also makes it very cheap because at the end of the day, if you are using less power than you, you are uh, generating, why not put it into Bitcoin? Why just let it waste away? It's essentially free for you because you already have that power. You, what else are you going to do with it, right? So you can compete with the biggest miners out there. You're not going to be uh, taken out because when you use it, you're using it with your additional resources that you were going to waste anyways, right? So I like to think that Bitcoin will become like that, that we're going to have uh, infrastructure that's uh, renewable energy uh, generation uh, with Bitcoin mining in there, maybe even heating involved. And that will allow us to have an abundance of energy at cheap costs and Bitcoin having a strong uh, energy source, right, from all the different uh, houses. Plus, you might uh, still have miners. I'm not saying they don't play a role in all of that. But you have this whole decentralized uh, system and hash rate essentially becomes a measure of energy abundance. So that's kind of like what I would like to see. Hopefully that's, that's at, least, at least in my mind where I can see this happening. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But I think there's a path towards that. I would agree. I, I think that's where we, ha we are headed. I think there's going to be, um, in home mining is going to be, become a lot more um, significant and available. And I think the, the cost of all that will go down. And I, I, I think that's almost inevitable to, to make that much more uh, economical for people. Miners, nodes, all of that will be uh, become cheaper for people and be a part of uh, residential uh, energy layouts. I'm curious to know, there, there's still a lot of pushback to that. And some of the common refrains are, you know, well, that energy could be used for something else. You know, why don't we just build the lines? Why don't we build more connections between uh, some of these uh, renewable s s sources of power and where it can be used? You know, who needs Bitcoin mining? It's still a waste. Do you have a response when, pe when people, you know, hear your idea and still think, well, it's, it's still a waste? Well, um, so for those, some of those people, it's hard to convince because I think they view Bitcoin as waste no matter what. Right. But my response right, is that, yes, other things can use that energy. But a lot of times is why isn't that happening, right? If you say that this could be done, then why isn't that happening? Yes. Right? Yes. Amen. <laughs> right. And two, I think uh, I do get, I do think being arbitrators as to what's good energy use and not good energy use. Well, we can have opinions about that. It does feel a little uh, undemocratic, right? Uh, to just decide that, no, I mean, at the end of the day, Bitcoin itself, because you're Bitcoin mining, what? harmful impacts does it have besides what anything else would use electricity for if anything is using electricity bitcoin has that same negative impact as as that uh energy supply whether it's uh you know your lights or uh drying machine what whatever it is if it's using electricity it has that same negative connotation as bitcoin has because bitcoin beyond that is now maybe some people will will say oh look at what's happening now but if you really understand Bitcoin, you know, that's not because of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I, I don't understand all of that. I think it's just the fact that people dislike Bitcoin and therefore want to dismiss it. Right. Um, but if you're looking at it from a more objective point of view, I think that it's positive because 
it's like we talked about it. It's flexible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you want it to be so low that it's only going to be used when it's being wasted and no other time, because any other time you 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 think that that could be being used for uh, I don't know for human civilization or for other purposes, then eventually, actually, it might even get there. Eventually, Bitcoin might get to be so cost effective that it's going to be priced so low that you're only going to be running off. Well, that's also the energy abundance angle. If we have so much energy, it doesn't matter if Bitcoin is using electricity, right? Right. And I think we get there. Eventually, over time, we get there and these other uh, complaints become nonsense. Um, When do we get there? I don't know. But I, I think it's more just people trying to push it aside without even giving it a fair look. Yeah, I agree that the debate almost gets a little dull because that's in fact what it always comes down to is that those retorts to uh, our your desire, your your visions, always come back to the person sees no value in Bitcoin. And that's when, as you've said, come back with, you know, okay, so you have an alternative plan. Why hasn't that plan happened? You know, and the, the, that always comes back to the same status quo situation that we're we're currently in, where you've got your plan. Well, let's see how it's going to be enacted in in four years when the new, you know, politicians get elected. Like it's the same. If the incentives don't change, nothing's going to change. And what Bitcoin represents is a new incentive system that that fixes a lot of the, the issues that we are currently faced with that have led us into this rut that we cannot get out of without a new system. So yes, I, I agree with you completely. At, at some point, the discussion just gets old. And if you don't believe it, it doesn't have any value, that's okay. We'll, we'll keep marching on. And I mean, what you said with the whole transmission and using the resources for that, the beauty of the the centralized world where we have the infrastructure is if it's being generated locally, your transmission needs are reduced substantially, right? We don't need all this transmission and this uh, additional transmission bandwidth if everybody's generating their own power. <laughs> so, thank you, thank you. Why are building transmission lines like this? This solution that you hear so many so often, like to me, those things are seem so destructive and 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 costly. Like how how is that a more appropriate solution than than on-site mining I, I i don't know the numbers but to me intuitively seems seems quite ridiculous do you separate then bitcoin incentivizing renewable build out from bitcoin's effect on reducing methane because to me they seem like two separate um, beneficial components of, of bitcoin correct you've got the side that says which you just described you know helping renewable energy build out um, and decentralizing it, making it more local. And then this whole other element of of um, mitigating methane uh, emissions. Is that how you see it as well? I, I definitely see it as uh, two separate things that are both uh, helping with the goal of uh, reducing uh, greenhouse gases. So um, I, I think they're both beneficial and um, the methane definitely seems uh, like a more important solution for the immediate because it's more uh, easily done. And, you know, uh, for the build out, you need the infrastructure build out. Um, you 
for grids, it's a lot more complex. And I'm definitely no grid expert, but um, I think mining companies are showing that they could just set up shop and start uh, using methane and mitigating methane because of its strong uh, greenhouse effect is a rapid way to reduce carbon equivalent uh, emissions. So I think it's definitely an important solution to help in the immediate cause uh, and could be long-term also helpful. I'm not saying that it, it isn't uh, helpful in the long-term because if there's always going to be waste and methane being released, then why not uh, use Bitcoin mining to reduce its impact? So um, I just look at see it as two separate things with the methane angle being something that could really help in the immediate term. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, are there any projects or ideas that that uh, or companies that are out there that uh, have really sparked your interest? Like, what are you paying attention to with regard to uh, Bitcoin mining and, and climate? Well, definitely, um, you know, Twitter has been a great resource to see what these companies are doing and others who are, are heavily involved in the Bitcoin space and actually uh, working on Bitcoin research. And uh, I follow them and I admire them and I'm definitely rooting for them. Um, that's being, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. Clean Spark, all these uh, energy uh, companies that are trying to use renewables or uh, methane mitigation, or all of those, are, I think, are companies to see because that's where the data is going to come from, right? We have all these people that are rooting against Bitcoin. Well, at the end of the day, they want data. We can say all we want, and we can make these nice uh, arguments and have this pretty picture about the future. But they want data, they want numbers, they want proof. And these people who are actually doing it are going to be able to provide that uh, proof that we need to convince uh, regulators, governments, um, environmentalists. So I'm definitely looking at all that research that's coming out and those who are actually doing it. Um, I, in, in a certain way, I wish I could do more of that part of stuff, but definitely... Uh, for now, at least, we'll never know what happens in the future. But you know, uh, sticking to climate science research, but uh, maybe maybe I'll uh, involve myself more in a, a editorial kind of uh, or opinion piece uh, stuff like that um, to try to be more involved. But but looking at you know what's happening, Twitter's a great resource for that, and seeing what uh, different companies, different people are doing, and. Uh, if they're doing something related to that, I'm usually trying to follow them or or seeing what's happening because I also want to be sure that what I think is correct and what my thoughts are are being validated because um, you know uh, information will can change your opinion. So, sure. um, yeah, you join forces with Nathaniel Harmon and you'll have uh, the, the equatorial uh, oceans covered, and then you'll have the poles. It'll be perfect. You'll you'll take over the world. <laughs> well, yes, uh, I mean he's actually doing applied stuff, right? Not just the uh, uh, the science behind it, but it's great that he's uh, finding a way to use uh, Earth's well, the oceans' thermal contrast and technology based off of that to extract that energy and make Bitcoin uh, a, an essential part of it to make it a monetary sound, and that could be another great way to provide energy to everybody in a clean way. So definitely rooting for him. Hope, hopefully it works out and I'll be looking to see whether uh, or not people change their minds when they see these projects pop up and uh, flourish. 
hopefully. I'm curious to know, have you had interactions with colleagues, other scientists about Bitcoin? Yes, I have. Uh, to those who I'm more friendly with, I've definitely had conversations about Bitcoin. Some of them just kind of uh, smile and are like, okay, Sergio, like, yeah, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Um, most who know me respect me enough that they don't just dismiss me or tell me like, okay, Sergio, you're crazy. Uh, they seem to more politely listen and hopefully maybe in one of those, it's going into their mind and maybe they'll look into it a little more. At least that's my hope. Uh, beyond that, there's only one other uh, person in my field that I know personally that is into Bitcoin, not nearly as much as I am, but uh, he agrees with my statements and my ideas. And I don't think he wants to be as involved as I am, mm -hmm. but he's definitely owns a little bit of Bitcoin. I don't know how much, but that's the one person that I know is a Bitcoiner beyond myself. And beyond that, Hopefully, the other people are at least listening to me, opening their minds and allowing them themselves. Those who are not are the ones who usually ask me, are you still into Bitcoin? Uh, is it is it still something you're interested in? And I tell them yes, because it's not the price that is the reason I'm into Bitcoin. It's the fundamentals behind it. So hopefully when they see that I'm still a Bitcoiner after the bear market, not just during the bull run, They'll be like, okay, maybe there's more to it than just uh, making money. So, well, your voice is needed. Like I said earlier, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of courage to put your neck out there when the very area of study and profession that you're in, by popular opinion, contrasts with something that you're passionate about and and feels like it's um, not helping the very thing that you that you were uh, working on. And so I commend you for being, being willing to come on the podcast. I'm very grateful for that. I encourage you to put your voice out there even more and team up with some of these uh, people whom you know to offer your hand and your expertise because I, without a doubt, know that they would uh, extend it to you as well. My last, second to last question that I have for you, I want you to, to tell me where this sentiment um kind of came from and how how it makes you feel basically you it was a tweet that you put out on the fourth of july you said my family and many others moved to the u.s in search of a better life due to their decision i have been able to accomplish things i probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to do in my birth country the next mass migration will be to financial freedom hashtag bitcoin how does that make you feel now several months after having posted that I mean, I still believe it. Um, I know it might not feel that way uh, when you hear current events occurring, but I feel ultimately what's happening with the traditional finance system, with inflation, with uh, you know what's happening with the Bank of England, uh, Japan, um, these credit markets, unfortunately for the average person, they're going to learn that the traditional finance system is not there for them, um, never really has been. And I at least think that we have this life boat, right, um, for them. And at that point, I don't I really don't hope it's in it because they're 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 forced to. But because they see that this is a way for them out of the system to hold on to something else, it's not meant to uh, tear down that system. It's just giving them an alternative 
because that system is going to tear down itself. It's it's definitely, um, I think, a lifeboat. And I think over time, at least that is my hope, people will see its value and will uh, move towards it. Uh, I hope they're not forced to move towards it because of the system. But I guess only time will tell if that's the case or not. Yes. What you said was the system will tear down itself. Yes. Exactly. You're not rooting for it, but it's almost by design that it will destroy itself. Correct. Any final thoughts for us? Mark, I, I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you caring about my voice and uh, others caring about my voice. Um, I'm not there doing the work as others do, but I'm definitely uh, supporting them and uh, I'll try to uh, hopefully be more of an influence and a bigger voice. Um, but I definitely am a big supporter. And my main thing, and I think this is what I wanted to say, is that I stick my neck out, not not because uh, I, I want to be, I don't know, a, a Bitcoin personality or, or, or such. I, my lack of tweets show that. If I did, I'd probably tweet more. It's to show others that are on the opposite side of the fence that there are people like them, that there is people that, quote unquote, reputable, at least that they were considered, right? That we're not all uh, right-wing libertarian uh, conspirators against the state. Um, I wouldn't say what I say unless I believed it. And hopefully, if you see my body of work, you see that what I've done, it's it's just as credible as anybody else. So that doesn't mean you should believe what I say. I just want you to have an open mind to be like, wait, if Sergio Sejas is involved, it's somebody that's a climate scientist that has done his proof of work as it's done, right, in terms of uh, studying the climate. If he thinks that this could be a benefit, maybe I should look at this more carefully and make your own decision, but at least make an uh, honest evaluation, not just blow it off as uh, so many do because you view it as the opposite thing or the opposite side. Because as what your podcast is doing and why it was so uh, needed is to show that there's many voices in Bitcoin and it might be voices that people didn't expect. And that's also why I, I, I say what I say and I put my neck out there to show that, that there is other people in there, that Bitcoin is maybe not what they thought it was. And that's essentially what my purpose was. And, but maybe, uh, maybe I'll do more than just that. We'd like to see it. My last question for you, what gives you hope? <laughs> well, Bitcoin, obviously, I'm, I'm sure that's a very popular answer to your uh, question. It's it's hard sometimes, you know, these days to see hope and seeing how uh, people are becoming antagonistic against each other. Um, so, so yes, Bitcoin is hope because I do feel it unites uh, people that would normally not be united. And overall, human ingenuity, I'd like to think that progress, technology, even though I see a lot of bad things, I know. I have a daughter. I know the world today is a better, at least where I am. That can't be said everywhere. And I might, might, I have to make that clear because that's not the case everywhere in the world. But I know where I am, thankfully, at least today, the world is better for my daughter than it was for the generation before me. And I just hope that that can be the case for the next generation, right? That's not guaranteed. Um, 
But I see that and I try to think of the, what the advancements that have been made. That gives me hope. And I hope that with things like Bitcoin, we can continue that trend and uh, keep moving human civilization towards the positive end. Um, so those things give me hope. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Please tell the listeners where they can find you and your research. Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, Sergio Sejas. Um, beyond that, you can, if you really want to find my work, you can use Google Scholar. Um, there's ResearchGate, which has a listing of my publications. Um, and uh, I think those are the two main sources for my scholarly work. Um, but Twitter, if you're if you're trying to just contact me about Bitcoin or curious about my thoughts on Bitcoin. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a delight. I learned a lot from you. Um, thank you so much, Sergio. All right, Mark. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.